0: Hi, I'm Becky McCoskey, and I'm going to share this morning about my encounters with Jesus. Uh, my mom was from a, grew up in a Nazarene church and had a very, uh, her dad was angry and would take them out of churches and to another church all the time uh, when he had a problem with the pastor. So it was kind of a negative experience for her a lot. And my dad was from a Pilgrim Holiness <coughs> background and. Um, the Davis group and our community was pretty famous for being backsliders. <laughs> I learned that term early on. They kind of uh, fumbled around the first five or six years of my life about church. And I would go to church with my Aunt Hazel, which I loved, and I loved her. And we went to a church of God, but a different church of God. And there, uh, you know, my encounters mostly are with people who were... Uh, Jesus to me and there was a lady there at that church who uh, every Sunday would turn around and smile at me and she would tear her piece of gum in half and give me half a piece and she made all over me like it was just so wonderful that I was there she was so happy. To kind of hop to to today's time I was in the car and this will all make sense in a minute, I was in the car with Charlotte coming home from preschool and I was telling her a scripture that I was trying to remember and um, I said, you could help me memorize it. And so it was, um, I'll probably mess it up, but this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, that my spirit is always with them and my words are always on their lips and on the lips of their children and on the lips of their children, all their descendants. And wow, I'm claiming that for my kids and my grandkids. And I was sharing this scripture with little four-year-old Charlotte. And she goes, so you mean like the Holy Spirit is on my lips right now. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's what I mean. And she was like, I can't even look him off. I said, nope, you can't even look him off. He is there, Charlotte, and he will never leave you. So she went home and told her mom, the Holy Spirit is on my lips, and I can't even look him off. And that was kind of when I realized, I'm the grandma now that I thought about my grandmas. And that's really... Uh, the genesis of my spiritual walk were my two grandmas, and they were very different. The grandma that I lived in the same town with was the backslider grandma. And she loved me, and she laughed, and she was fun. My job in the summertime was to keep an eye out for the uh, Pilgrim Holiness Sisters, because they would make calls on the backsliders. And I would run through the backyards to tell my grandma, the sisters are coming. And she would hide her cigarettes. And, and, all that so that was kind of my role with her and then my other grandma was in Ohio and she was quiet and um, she had been through a lot in her life both my grandmas were uh, booted out of their houses at an early age and put in other people's homes and they kind of became live-in maids and um, both of them had a bunch of kids both of them had my parents when they were 40 and both of them went on to have two more kids. But one had eight kids. The grandma in Ohio had eight kids before that. So her life with her eight kids and her husband uh, gave her lots of opportunity to pray. And I have heard the stories about her at the kitchen sink, um, tears rolling down her cheeks because she's praying for her kids. And um, she had a son in World War II who. She woke one night with an urgency to pray and she got of bed on her knees and prayed and cried out to the Lord. And it turned out that night his ship was attacked in the Pacific and he was floating around the Pacific and she was prompted to get up and pray. And she had a son who was convicted of robbery and sent to prison. And she had a son who had polio uh, at a very young age. And she had a very abusive husband And she's raising all these kids during the Depression on a little 20 acre farm. So I heard all the stories about her and her faith, and I wanted to be like Grandma Sutton. So um, I always had a longing to know more about God. So we went to the Lutheran Church and I went through the catechism class and I memorized everything they told me to memorize and I got confirmed and I remember choosing Anderson. My brother had gone there for a year and I told my friends, I want to use this experience not just to grow for my career or my education, but I think if I go to Anderson I can grow spiritually and that's, I don't want to leave that part out. So I chose to go to Anderson for that reason. And, wow, did I meet Jesus at Anderson. There was a girl next door, I would watch people, and there was a girl next door in the room next to me in the dorm, her name was Jeannie Bowling, and she had such a deep and profound love for Jesus. And she didn't, you know, go around spouting it all the time, but if you lived beside her, you knew, you knew. and. Um, I remember one day she was crying because one of her good friends had told her she didn't really think Jesus was um, who we all thought he was. And it broke her heart because she just had such a deep concern for this girl's soul. And I thought, wow, this is just so freaking real to her. And there were a lot of people like that that I got to know. Um, My roommate, Priscilla Campbell, and her whole family really showed me Jesus. I said, that's what I want, Lord. I want you to be that real to me and he is and he's gotten me through um, all these years and some struggles and I'm not perfect. I'm doing this thing called dwell differently and every month I get a little package and I get a tattoo with an anagram of my scripture for that month and I get a a devotional card and a thing to put on my keychain and there's a bunch of um, there's a, a podcast all month focused on that scripture and that's really helped me pull me back and get me focused and the theme lately last couple months seems to be everlasting love unfailing love and that's uh what we sang about in church yesterday that God is the same and I immediately my mind goes to my grandma Sutton standing at that sink, praying her heart out with a husband who's not that nice to her and a bunch of kids that are in all kinds of problems, and she's praying and praying and praying. And um, I have that same God, and He doesn't care what a mess I am. The unfailing love is unfailing and um, everlasting. And those are my two big words right now unfailing and everlasting. And it doesn't matter what a mess I am, because sometimes I'm a real mess is I serve a God who's unfailing, has an everlasting love for me. Now, it's hard sometimes to really conceptualize that love. Won't we'll get glimpses of it. It's enough to just kind of knock your socks off. And I have a lot of stories about that, too, but I'm not going to go into them today. But um, my encounters with Jesus, have. there have been some really, really, truly real ones where it was him and nobody but him, and I know it, and... Um, <coughs> there's been a lot through people and it's those people that speak most to me and how, what they've done and what they've said and I get a little overwhelmed by thinking I'm gonna be I, now I'm the grandma and it's my job uh, to stand at the sink and pray and um, I want all of my grandkids to know I mean this world's crazy and you can go a little bit nuts thinking about how crazy it's getting every day but the only peace I find in that is that there's a God who has equipped my, all my kids and my grandkids and has given them everything they need, and they just need to lean on Him. And that's what I want them to know. I want to be that grandma that does that.
1: She's right. Sometimes His love is enough to knock our socks off. Everybody has a story and everybody's story matters to God everybody has a story and everybody's story matters to God I love Becky's um, honesty and how she's seen how um, she has seen kind of a bit of a full circle ness to um, how life is is really a big long story how she um, had a grandma. <laughs> also, I, I, love, uh, I love the term backslider. What a, great, what a great term. I'm probably there. But I love how she has seen uh, her role change over time. How, how um, her grandma was this person in her story who made this deep impact in how now she has been given the opportunity, not as a perfect person, uh, but as a person um, who has been marked by grace and by love. I love her story because it's, it's, it's deeply honest. I, as I've become a parent, there are moments where I look back and say, man, how was my dad not scared in this moment? And in, when you're a kid, right, like even if your dad isn't like the biggest, like you believe your dad could beat up other dads, right? There's, there is that pecking order. You walk around and you're like, oh, yeah, he could take him. He could take him. Okay, maybe not him. Um, like, you just believe that, right? And then, and then if, you, if you're not a parent, yeah, a dirty little secret is, is oftentimes you're just as scared as the kid is. You have no idea what's going on half the time. You're just really good at faking it and looking calm. And I love how Becky is modeling, though, to her grandkids and kids now. Everyone has a story. Everyone's story matters. And everyone who encounters Jesus can change for the better doesn't matter your past doesn't matter your current predicament and it doesn't matter what your future you think holds every single person has an opportunity to encounter Jesus and encounter him in a profound way this morning I I briefly want to talk about wild women if you got a uh, if you got a bulletin this morning you might have noticed that that is part of the title this morning I want to talk about wild women in an even wilder grace in particular, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this thing that everyone loves to talk about, that everyone, like at a dinner party or the first time you're meeting people, like, hey, let's talk about this topic, and that's shame. Because who doesn't like feeling inadequate? Who doesn't like feeling alone? Who doesn't like to feel as if maybe not only have they done bad things, but maybe that they are bad? Shame is this powerful tool of the enemy. We're going to briefly look at three stories in the gospel of women who dealt with shame. Uh, But I want us to go back to the very beginning because it's important in many ways to understand how we got to where we are uh, as humans. So if we go back to the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything is beautiful. Everything is perfect. There are these two people in this garden named Adam and Eve, and everything is perfect. And they're given just this one rule, right? Don't eat from this tree. That's it. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. And what do they end up doing, right? They end up being tempted by uh, the deceiver, the father of lies, Satan. And he, he gets them to wonder, is God as good as he says he really is? And in, in, in turn, really, are you really as good as God says you are? And as they uh, take a bite of the apple, if you remember this uh, story that is a uh, tale as old as time, um, we find that the people begin to realize that they are naked. And in that moment, they feel something that they were not initially created to feel. They feel ashamed. They feel like what is there is not supposed to be seen. They begin to feel like this is no longer good. And this is the beginning of this uh, fall that we oftentimes talk about. Where this thing called sin enters into the world and sin is just uh, really a rebellion against God's will and God's way that puts distance between us and God because of his great holiness which cannot coexist in many ways with sin and brokenness. And humanity begins to feel this thing that God did not create them to feel which is shame. And shame, uh, the, the best way to understand this in, in many ways is that um, shame is, is not just this mere feeling that I did something bad. That's guilt. That's normal. That, 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 I think that was part of the initial plan. You know, you do something bad, you should feel bad about it. But shame goes kind of a farther stance. It sort of says, not only maybe did I do something bad or did something bad happen to me, but we begin to believe that we are bad, that we are unworthy, that we are irredeemable. And every single one of us, if we have breath in our lungs, if we are sitting in this room, have dealt with shame in one way or another. Every single one of us have moments where we feel like, what's the point? I can't go on. No one would love me again if they knew what I did. Because oftentimes, shame involves secrecy. It involves uh, things that were happening in hidden places. And we always wonder if someone saw that email, knew about that encounter that I had with someone else, saw my search history, the world would end. And we begin to allow ourselves to feel like this. Now, again, in the beginning, everything was good. It talks about how in Scripture, Jesus would, or God would walk with the people. But if you remember, when they began to realize that they were naked and they had shame, do you remember what they did? They hid. Because shame oftentimes uh, is, is, again, it's either typically uh, the, 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 it causes us to sin or it's the result of sin. That's typically how shame works. Either it is the result of a sin or, or it causes us to sin. And in this case, again, the Adam and Eve, they decide that they are going to go hide. Because like all of us, we believe in some ways if we can just hide it, avoid it, not talk about it, maybe it doesn't really happen. And yet most of us, if we're honest, if we've experienced the healing and freedom that comes from grace and honesty and forgiveness, we realize that oftentimes uh, we, we, we look back and like, why did I try to hide this? And honestly, we typically, especially with God, realize that we look like a two-year-old who's playing hide-and-seek, standing like this, hoping that no one sees us in the middle of a room. Because in many ways, one of the most powerful things the enemy can do to us is to make us feel isolated and alone and make us feel like we're actually hiding it from everyone else, that it's actually a good thing, but it never is. Again, shame oftentimes makes us not just feel, feel like we did something bad, but that we are bad. We begin to think um, in those uh, sort of things where we use these large overgeneralizations, right? I can't do anything right. I could never be loved. No one will ever trust me again. We, we get into these things, and that is what shame does because it sets up this soundtrack, this cycle, these broken records and patterns in our head that start with brokenness and lead us down the road to have more and more brokenness. Now, briefly, I want to tell three stories, three of my favorite stories in Scripture, and they involve three different women who experience Uh, shame in different ways i'm going to tell one story and read two and the first one comes from the gospel of john and and it's an interesting story because we don't get a lot of these sort of stories where it's jesus one-on-one with someone oftentimes that guy his his 12 disciples it's almost like having 12 kids they're always with him. i understood why he got away by himself i know he went to spend time with the lord but he probably also was like i need a break from y'all and so we're not exactly sure why he's alone, but he is alone, and he's traveling through this area called Samaria. And in, uh, in, in Jesus' time, where he, he was uh, uh, living, there were uh, the Jews, and then there were the Samaritans. And the Samaritans uh, were these people who uh, came from some Jewish descent, but not all. And so the Jews looked at them, um, you know, it's kind of like a Bloods and the Crips thing, Hatfields and McCoys sort of feeling, um, Apple versus Android. Um, you get the vibe. They did not like each other or love each other. And so Jesus, it's in the middle of the day. It's this warm time where, uh, honestly, especially in cultures like that, you're not trying to travel. You're not going to do your chores in the middle of the day because it's just it's hot, it's sticky. And in many ways, you typically, at a place like a well where people would go to draw water, it would not have been the prime time of the day for someone uh, to be there, which is why there's this Samaritan woman who happens to be there. The Samaritan woman who we find out has a bit of a past, that she's living with a man and it's not the first man she's lived with. We don't know all of her story. We just know that her story uh, at some point has been hijacked in which she has a lot of shame, where there's brokenness in her life, where it appears like she is deeply searching for love and affection and wholeness and value and worth. And she continues to look for it in relationships that appear to not work. And we find that she's there in the middle of the day when no one else would be there, probably because she's tired of the whispers of the people who say, ah, they're so-and-so. She's tired of these things. And in this encounter that happens on this day, Jesus meets this woman, and he asks her for a drink of water. Now, this is wild, because in many ways, for all of us, we're like, well, that's not like that big of a deal. He asked them. Uh, we, we have to understand social norms and cultural things at this time. A man would not typically speak to a woman like that whom he does not know, and he especially as a Jewish man would not be uh, encountering and, and doing any sort of uh, interaction, uh, let alone with a Samaritan woman, and obviously a Samaritan woman who appears has a bit of a reputation. And Jesus has this interaction with this woman where where he tells her, If you knew who I was, you would actually be asking me for living water. And it's interesting, if you've ever read this story, uh, this woman does something that all of us tend to do really well. When things start to get real, we change the subject. And so, as Jesus is trying to tell her this, like, Here's the opening. You're dealing with all this stuff. I know this pattern that you have. What does she do? She changes the subject and she says, well, I've heard that there's a, there's a Messiah that eventually is going to come someday. And it's in this moment that he invites her to let her know, I am he. You see, it's really easy sometimes in the midst of uh, our patterns of pain and brokenness and shame, when we're trying to hide, we're trying not to deal with it all, to try to change the subject. One of the incredible things about Jesus when we encounter him is he continues to push the issue. He continues to seek out after us. You see, she was hoping that she would be isolated and alone and stay in these patterns. And yet, what does Jesus do? He draws near. She thinks that maybe it's, she's, you know, this is, this is my lot in life. And what does Jesus do? He continues to invite her to something better, to a better way. See, friends, when I think about this story, I think about this reality that your broken patterns cannot keep you from God meeting you exactly where you are, and from him loving you into uh, being who he created you to be. Now, your broken patterns of sin and shame and secrecy, those definitely can keep you from living into who God created you to be. One of the most um, incredible, fascinating things to me is the fact that um, Jesus is relentless In his pursuit of meeting us in the midst of our junk. Or as my friend Becky would say, when we're a hot mess. There's nothing that we can do that can screw it up so bad that Jesus is like, all right, call it, I'm done. I finally found one that's hopeless. God sees us. And there's something really powerful about being seen. There's this story in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is invited uh, into uh, uh, going to heal this little girl. And we're going to talk about that story in uh, a few weeks. But uh, on his way to, to go meet this little girl who is dealing with something, he's trying to walk through um, the streets of a city. And it's one of those times where things are just packed tight Have you ever been in one of those situations where you are just packed tight with people, right? And you're praying to God like, please, I hope they used right and left guard this morning. Like it is just, you're in the thick of it. And this is what I picture is happening. Jesus is walking through, and this is what scripture says in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. It says this, as Jesus was on his way, the crowd almost crushed him. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Can you imagine 12 years? I'm, not a, I'm a guy, so I, I, I don't understand any of that anyways. I'm not trying to get weird, but like, I cannot imagine some sort of just continual ailment for 12 years. And we have to understand something contextually, okay? Uh, in those ancient cultures, which it, it, it's wild that they would do these sort of things, but a person like that, they would see as like, you are unclean. There is something wrong with you. Oftentimes, even people of the Jewish faith, which, you know, are kind of, kind of our, our, our four brothers and sisters and mothers and all that, they would have seen like, obviously, you did something to tick off God. Which we can laugh at now, right? But have you ever had bad things happen to you and you do, you do kind of go and like, God, what did I do to you? Yeah. And even though conceptually maybe we know that we just live in a broken, fallen world where bad things happen, there's still a piece of us that's like, ah, what did I do? Or did my uncle do something bad and I'm being punished? But for 12 years, this is happening to her. And no one could heal her. It says this, though. She came up behind him and she touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Now, again, we've all been in these crowded areas, right? Where you're like, listen, I don't know who touched my butt, but thank you. Um, but we don't know. I'm usually open a ton to my wife. But like, it is just like, who does that? And that's, that's where, where this guy named Peter says to him. He says, master, the people are crowding around and pressing against you. Like, How are you going to know? Of course people are touching you. He said, no. Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then honestly, maybe one of the most courageous verses in all the Bible. Like how easy would have it been to be this lady who's like, peace, got my healing. It would have been so easy to not out oneself. To be honest, there's a lot of us who deal with this. Many of us who, who have healing and never share. But this woman, in an incredible act of courage and bravery, does this. Then the woman, seeing that she couldn't go unnoticed because everyone's looking around, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, to me, there's so so much we could unpack here, but one one of the things I love the most is he doesn't say, hey, lady. He doesn't say, hey, you. He doesn't even use, like, her name, even though he's Jesus and he probably knew her name. He says, Daughter there are very few things as intimate and loving as uh, being a son or a daughter. I think it's why it's one of the most important things that, that, that God calls us his kids. It's pretty incredible, right? Because we, we don't get to choose our kids. You know, that's one of those interesting things in life, right, when, 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 when you have a baby, like they come out and you're like, whoa, whoa. And then oftentimes, you know, sometimes you're like, hey, it's me, oh gosh, no, why? But he uses this intimate term that that this is, you're a daughter. And the healing came from her faith because she had just gotten to a place where she was, everything is exhausted. She's dealing with this pain in isolation, in, in secrecy, and she just wants something. And I think at her core... Because again, this would have been something that she probably, she can't talk about. It's not like something she goes on and on, you know, when people are like, hey, how's it going, Gertrude? Oh, pretty great. You're labbing of bleeding. Like, that's probably not the thing she's, you know, leading with at the uh, well that morning. And so she's probably dealing with this sense of shame. And it's interesting, right? Shame sometimes comes from um, broken things that we do or that are done to us. And sometimes they just come from things that we didn't choose. Life threw at us. Many of us are walking through things right now, maybe it's grief, maybe it's worry, maybe it's shame, with things that are completely outside of our control, that are wholly not dependent upon decisions or things that we've made, and that's tough. And yet, one of the things I love about um, this story is is there's something that reminds us that there is power in being seen, and especially beyond our sin and our shame. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I, one of my great fears in life when I'm um, not listening to God's voice is that people will see me for who I think I am at my worst. That people will see me for the person who's greedy, who's full of lust, who has a short temper. And I begin to have these like records in my mind. And, and honestly, as I've, as I've gotten older too, I've even realized, even though maybe even at a worse place, people will see me when I'm successful in great, not realizing that I'm drowning inside. Because shame invites us to believe the fake press. It invites us to believe that we either are our uh, accomplishments and also, in particular, that we are our greatest failures. And yet Jesus' invitation is just to say, I see you. I see you, my son. I see you, my daughter. And by the way, I see the junk. I heard someone once say uh, that, that God doesn't want to transform who we pretend to be. He wants to transform the real us. And there's a huge power in just the fact that sometimes to be seen by someone else in the midst of our suffering and our shame and our hiding and for someone to love us enough to say, let me help you come out. Many of us have had someone do that for us over time. And if our... Story has been transformed by Jesus if we've had an encounter with him I almost guarantee a piece of that story involves finally feeling like you are seen at your worst even and God still saying that's my boy that's my daughter there's a final story I want to tell and in it Jesus is, is in this um, time this comes from the gospel of John um, <laughs> chapter 8, and, uh, and it goes like this. It says, uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn, he, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. But as he, he's sitting down and about to teach them, it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? It's interesting this, this story, right? Because there, there, there's a lot of things to, to unpack, right? Um, why is it just the woman who's there by herself? But I love this story because it reminds us, it, it paints this picture that oftentimes, um, when it feels like things are about to hit the fan, I won't use the, the, the old Hebrew word, um, oftentimes it, it feels like we are there by ourselves. And, you know, as, they, as, as we're going to find out in a minute, they're, they're trying to set Jesus up, but... Um, this story's interesting because it reminds us that um, the brutality of some of, of ancient culture. So, so in this ancient culture, if someone was found to be caught in the act of adultery, it was fine and normal in this time. The, 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 the punishment that fit the crime, because sin, right? Sin, which is disobedience, it's breaking of the law, has consequences, right? Even though there's grace, there's always consequence to sin. And so the, the consequence for this is that if someone was caught in the midst of adultery, they would stone them. And not like stoning like happens in um, my native state of Michigan where now there's weird signs on the way up there. Um, but they would quite literally find rocks on the ground and, and they would pick them up and they would just throw stones at a person until they died. It's incredibly just like wild and barbaric. But also in some ways is a, um, a picture of um, life without grace. Grace where there's just constantly one thing after another, a lie, um, a a deceitful thing, uh, just, just things that constantly eat away at us. And so this woman finds herself all alone, thrust in here. Again, oftentimes, Our sin and our shame happens in hidden places. But in this moment, this woman, thrown out here, right or wrong, just or unjust, she finds herself in the place where she feels all alone and that the worst thing, her biggest nightmare, everybody knows, everyone's there, and there's consequence. And this is what it says. they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. And then it says this, but Jesus bent down And he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let anyone who is out without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's interesting. Scholars debate. What in the world did he do? Did he did he bend down and write down haters back off? Did he write a scripture? that had to do with um, sin and grace. One of my favorite um, thoughts they have is that maybe he started writing down everyone else's sin. We don't know. But something powerful ends up happening. It says, again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who had heard began going away, one at a time. The oldest ones first, Till only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now I I love this story. I love this story because um, we are all this lady. Um, we are all um, birthed into this world where there is sin and shame and ultimately every single one of us at some point, whether through injustice, through our own choices, all of these sort of things, will find ourselves thrust into a place where we stand there feeling alone and feeling like there are people with rocks just ready to destroy us. And the truth is, if I'm honest, oftentimes the voices of shame that I allow to inhabit my mind and my heart are the ones who are first ready to throw rocks at me. But I love this story. Can you imagine being this lady? Like everything is just there. You're just like feeling like I'm, I'm donezo. Like it's over. And then you just start to hear stuff, right? You slowly start to hear people their rocks right slowly realizing like I'm not without sin it's it's disarming and it's beautiful and it's a perfect representation of the good news of Jesus Christ because if there was any person there who had every right to say yep I got no sin it's Jesus He would have had every right to throw a rock, to give her the consequences that the law required. And yet instead, what does he do? He offers grace and unconditional love, and he invites her into something beautiful. What I love about that story is every single one of us is in the same shoes as that lady. Jesus looks at us, And he comes to our defense as our defender and our deliverer. And it doesn't matter whether we deserve to be there or not, he shows up. And he says, I got you. One of the things I love about this story is it reminds us of this larger, greater truth, which is this, is that shame cannot coexist with love. Shame cannot coexist with love. Where there is true, agape love, shame cannot cannot exist because what is the antidote to lies, which is really what shame is, is the truth. And in the love of God, we find the truth. We find truly who we are, who we are created to be, who we are at our best. And we find out that even when we're at our worst, God loves us. And one of the most beautiful um, verses in all of scripture, uh, in 1 in John chapter 4, it says this, God is love. You want to know who God is? You want to know who Jesus is? He is love. He's just embodied. It says, Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. He says this There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made. You know, in many ways, you could swap out fear for shame because, again, at its core, shame feeds on our greatest fears, our biggest insecurities, our biggest worries. And yet where there is love, love where we know that we are seen, that we are covered, that we are loved regardless of those things, the voices of shame have no more power. The voices of shame have to drop their stones and walk away. Because even those voices of shame, internal and external, do not have power over the one voice that matters, which is Jesus. The beauty of this, the, the, the big idea of this, this whole morning that I want you guys just to get is that Jesus sees us and he gives us grace And he invites us to new life. He looks at us and says, my son, my daughter, have faith and you will be healed. My son, my daughter, stop going to places that lead to brokenness, to wells that can make you continue to thirst. Come to me and have living water that will restore you forever. And he says, my son, my daughter, I don't condemn you. I came to love you and invite you to live this life with me today and spend eternity with me tomorrow. The worship team's gonna come out and we're gonna sing one last song. Um, but as we go into a time of prayer, I, I want you to know uh, that no matter what your past has been like, no matter where you feel in this moment, would you know that you are um, loved? And you're not loved because of your successes and you're not, not loved because of your failures. That God sees you for exactly who you are, exactly where you are. And he loves you so much. But he also loves you far too much to leave you there. And that maybe this morning is a great opportunity to just say, God, I need you to step in. I feel like this lady just trapped here and I need a deliverer and I need a savior. Would you know that if you just cry out to him, ask him to forgive your sins, and begin to live a life following after him, you too could experience love everlasting. Would you guys stand tonight and join me in prayer? Father, we are we are so incredibly grateful for your um, everlasting love that knocks our socks off. That is just wild and uncontainable. And something we don't deserve. And something oftentimes, Father, we don't even have the courage to pursue. And yet, Father, you see us. And you know us. You love us. So, Father, in this time, would you just speak to us? Father, I pray for those who may, may, maybe are just processing for the first time um, some, 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 some grief or shame or trauma. and Would they just experience freedom uh, in you? Father, I know for some, maybe, maybe they're wrestling with, with truly surrendering to you and just following you. Father, I pray that you would give them the courage and the confidence to know uh, that you have called them on purpose because you love them. Father, as we sing this song, would we just have an encounter with your son, Jesus? And his incredible grace. And Father, with the words that we sing and the posture of our heart, just bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.